Good morning, Grace. Our scripture reading for the morning is in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 33. If you'd enjoy reading along from a pew Bible, it's on page 73. Exodus 33, 12, page 73. Ever hear someone argue with God? You're going to hear it now. This is Moses. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you before my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood before him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children 
to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the Word of God. Good morning, church. It's okay, I'd like to share a quick update and then get into God's Word. Uh, Many of you ask about how my mom is doing. Uh, She is still in rehab in Arlington, um, but due to some um, insurance complications, we are having to uh, bring her home quicker than we would have liked. So she will be, um, I'll be going to get her and bring her home on Tuesday of this week. Can you pray for our family as we try to navigate all the home care needs that she will have and um, that she'll continue to heal and grow Uh, Thank you. She is encouraged by your cards and your prayers, uh, as is our family. We are in this series in the book of Exodus, from slavery to glory, and we've been saying all along that this is the story of the nation of Israel. This is the the birth of the nation, God bringing them out of slavery, uh, making them a nation, making them His people, but this is also our story. This is our story. We, we, are, we see how God has used the Exodus story to really parallel what the gospel does for us, what Jesus does for us, and, the, and so much of the Bible builds upon this account. Today's message is the, glo- uh, the glorious presence of God. The glorious presence of God. Have you ever had an experience in life that you uh, that was so memorable, so impactful, that you would say it was life-defining for you. Maybe a hinge moment in life. Some of us have had an experience like that, maybe like at, at a graduation, uh, maybe a high school or college graduation, and uh, that sense of accomplishment, right? You, you, you have reached a milestone, and, and there's this honor given to you after many years of study and hard work, and, and your family and friends gather to celebrate. Kind of a life-defining moment. For, other, for others of us, it's a, a time when there's a new relationship being established. Maybe a, a wedding or a birth of a child. There's all kinds of celebratory things around those, those events. I remember at my own wedding, uh, everybody was there to gather uh, to see us, and we're all dressed up, and, and there's all kinds of ceremonial aspects to, 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 to address the, the weightiness of this commitment, right? A, a bride walking down the aisle, the father giving away the bride to the groom, vows, right? We don't even talk like that anymore, vows, rings, and then a great party afterwards, I remember my wedding day very vividly. I remember standing in front of a church kind of just like this and anxiously waiting to see my bride, Denny Beth, for the first time. And the music was playing and the family and friends were all seated and I'm looking at them and they're looking at me, but I don't want to see any of them. I just want to see one person. And I hadn't seen her all day. And finally the music stops and they open up the doors and, and there she was, this, this dramatic entrance and she was stunning. And that moment will be forever etched in my mind. I remember thinking, I feel so thrilled and so terrified at the exact same time. (laughs) I was so overcome with emotion that I started crying. 
Ever have an experience like that? Again, maybe it wasn't a wedding. Maybe it was when a, a, you're holding a newborn baby, a newborn child, and you're like, this life was like growing in, in, a, in a womb, and now like they're outside the womb, and it's incredible. Maybe it was a special trip you took as a family that's unforgettable. Maybe it was a mission trip, and you still remember the feeling of being there. Today's passage is one of those life-changing moments for Moses. Not only an experience that will define his life, it will actually define the very life of the people of Israel. And it's an experience that will define the life of everyone now who encounters the same God, the same living God, Yahweh. And it is hard to overstate how important this passage is to understanding who God is and how he relates to our people. This is the defining passage in the Old Testament. This is the John 3.16 for the Hebrew Scriptures. And this encounter with Moses and God is meant to show us what our relationship with God can look like as well. Three lessons today. Back to three. No more for two. We got three today. So lesson number one, the glorious presence of God is what you need most. So here's Moses. He is at the top of what's called Mount Sinai, and he's talking to God. Uh, God has already dramatically rescued the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, They're camped now, all of them, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this passage in, in chapter 33 and 34 are right on the heels of one of the darkest incidents in the history of Israel, the golden calf incident. Right? Moses had been up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and the law for 40 days, and it was taking him too long, and so the people get anxious and, and impatient. They tell Aaron, make a golden calf so that we might worship this God who brought us out of Egypt. And God sends Moses back down the mountain to confront their sin, and Moses intercedes for the people. God doesn't destroy them like he, he said he might do, and, and, and he doesn't wipe out. He actually forgives them. And then in the beginning of chapter 33, God says to Moses, all right, you are going to go up in the land that I promised you. I made promises way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I promised every one of them, I'm going to send you to this land. I promise you and the people, I'm going to send you to this land, and I'm going to do it because I'm a man of my word. I'm a God of my word. And I'm going to give you success militarily. I'm going to give you success economically. I'm going to give you success politically. And I will ensure that you will have this land flowing with milk and honey. Look, it's all going to work out for you. But there's only one problem, God tells Moses. God says, I personally will not go with you. I'll give you everything you want, but you won't get me. You'll have all of my blessings, we heard last week, but you won't get my my presence. Can I just say, ironically, this is a very appealing offer for most people. As one writer put it, this is actually the kind of religion most Americans dream of. You get God's power. You get God's blessing. You get God's provision. You get military, political, economic success. And you don't have to worry about God's presence living amongst you. You don't have to worry about a tabernacle and sacrifices and obeying him. He won't be at the center of your camp and he won't be in the center of your life. You get all the benefits of God without any commitment to God. Doesn't that sound appealing? And most Americans go, yes. That's why some of the biggest churches are filled with, with people because they are preaching a message of you get all these things from God and 
you may or may not get God, but that doesn't really matter because you get all the things from him. Would it be okay with you to have the blessings of God without having to deal with the presence of God ruling over your life? Have you settled for a religious experience where you only turn to God when you're in trouble, when you need something, but he's not really at the center? Moses is, is offered this from the Lord, and he doesn't accept this offer. He's not okay with this offer. He tells God, in essence, you can give us success. You can give us blessings. But if we don't have you, God, we have nothing. If we don't get your presence, Moses tells God, don't even send us out. Verse 12 of chapter 33, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. God, you're calling me to lead this people out of slavery, and, and you've done that, and you've called me to lead this people all the way to the promised land, but I cannot do this without you leading us. Moses is interceding for the people. Again, remember, he's their mediator. He, he stands in their place to talk to God. Talk to God. God, I need you to go with me and to be with us. Verse 13b. Show me now your ways that I might know in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. And then God offers another interesting proposal. Verse 14. And he said, God said, all right, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. By the way, the you here is singular. He's saying to Moses, I will go with you, Moses, personally. This is God's second offer. I will go with you. You and I, we're friends. I know you face to face, but look, I'm not going with the people. I'll go with just you. That's what God is offering here. And Moses rejects this offer as well. He says, Lord, if your, Moses, if your presence does not go with all of us, then don't send us out. Just leave us here. This is absolutely incredible. Where are the people right now? They're not in the promised land, are they? No, they're in the middle of a wilderness. No military, no prosperity, no land. And Moses has the audacity to say, God, without your glorious presence among us, it would be better for us to rot out here in the wilderness than to prosper in the promised land. Something has happened to Moses since encountering God back in Exodus 3. He's come to see God not as a means to an end, but as the end itself. Can you see that? Do you see God as the ultimate prize today? Is he your ultimate reward or is he a means to an end? If you had to choose right now, you get God and nothing else, or you get everything else but him, what would you choose? Is your relationship with God transactional or transformational? Do you love God more than what you love from what he could give you? We get a glimpse into Moses' heart for his people here. They just built and worshipped a golden calf. They have treated him like dirt every step of the way as a leader. And yet he says, God, I love this people and I know your heart. You love them even more than I do. Please go with us. This is servant leadership. Notice the case he makes to God. Verse 16. How shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? I and your people. This is a we now. 
Is it not you going with us so that we are distinct, eyeing your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying, God, it is your presence among us that distinguishes us as your people. I love this. He's saying, it's not our prosperity that's going to set us apart, God. It's not the land that we have that we're going to get that's going to set us apart. It's not our military power that's going to set us apart. Those don't define us, God. It's your presence among us that will define us. And look, the word presence that is throughout this passage, it's actually the the Hebrew word face. Moses is saying, it's your face that we need and long for. And if your face doesn't go with us, we're not going anywhere. Did you know it's still God's face, God's presence living among us and inside of us by the Holy Spirit that makes us a distinct people of God? It is not our power that makes us the people of God. It is not our wealth or status or numbers or buildings that makes us the people of God. Those things may come and go. The church will make a difference in our world, not because of its programs or its leaders, but because of God's presence among us. I hope you believe that. I hope you know that. Grace Baptist Church is nothing without the presence of God living among us. In Jesus, God is gracious. He made his home in our hearts. We are nothing without his glorious presence. Do you believe that? That's lesson number one. Number two, the glorious presence of God is worthy of our worship. Moses said, without your presence, your face with us, remember presence is face, without your face with us, we are nothing. And God graciously responds in verse 17, I will do it. What you have asked, Moses, I will do. I will go up with you and this people. And this is where the story takes an unexpected twist. You would think, finally, Moses has the answer that he's been longing for, that he desires. This is great news. God just said, I'm going to go with you, just as you asked, Moses. Remember back in verse 11 of chapter 33, it described how God will speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so now Moses asked the Lord, his friend, for something truly spectacular. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Do you know what he's asking for? Moses wants to experience what makes God, God. Whatever that is. The word glory in Hebrew is the word kabod. It it means weight. Literally, it means a weight or significance. It signifies importance. It's God's importance. It's his significance. It's what makes him matter. Moses knows that God's glory is beyond description. I think he knows that by now. But he also knows that God's glory is the most satisfying reality in the universe. It's the most significant, valuable in the universe. And so he boldly asks, God, I want to see your face. I want to look right into the heart of your glory. Show me your magnificent beauty. Show me what makes you the most valuable being in the universe. You and I may have never used that language or said that, but look, this is the cry of every human heart, whether we know it or not. 
We all want to know what's it like to experience genuine awe and beauty and wonder to the degree that in one sense we long for it, to the degree that really we want to experience that kind of awe and beauty in, in a sense that nothing else matters or in a sense that everything else gets its meaning from that thing. Moses keeps asking, God, I want to know you more intimately. You're saying we're a friend. I want to know you. Look, have you ever asked that of God? Have you ever prayed this? God, uh, show me your glory. Show me your goodness. I want to know you more intimately. Pray that and see what he does. God answers Moses with a, a yes and a no. He says, yes, I will make all my goodness pass by you, and I'll proclaim my name which connects his glory to his name, right? His glory is wrapped up in his goodness and his name. We also see here that his glory is not just something experienced, right? We don't just come to church for an atmosphere or an experience of God. We come with specific knowledge of God. God says, I'll show you my glory and I'm going to impart actual knowledge, truth about who I am. Worshiping God is knowing who he is, not just experiencing whatever is in the air. But God says, no, as well. Yes, I'll show you my goodness and proclaim my name, but no, you can't see my face. You can't see my glory head on. No one can, Moses. My glory is so great, it it would consume you. He's saying, Moses, look, I'm like the sun. I'm magnificent, I'm beautiful, I'm powerful. You can enjoy it, but you can't look directly into me or you will will be destroyed. Remember back in Exodus 3, God showed up in the burning bush. And we talked about how it it was a fire. And we talked about how fire is beautiful in that it draws us in, right? It wants us to, we long to get closer to it. But it also, fire is also something that keeps us at a distance or we get burned. That's what God is like. God tells Moses, I'll hide you in a cleft or a little kind of cut out of a rock. And and I will cover you with my own hand. Look, this is a whole other sermon. God protects Moses from God. I'm going to hide you in the rock. I'm going to put my hand in front of you. He doesn't have a physical hand, right? This is all kind of um, anthropomorphic language. Uh, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll let all my glory pass by you, and then I'll take away my hand, and you'll see the back of my glory, not the front. That's God's answer. So the next day it says, chapter 34, Moses goes back up the mountain. He's got two tablets again. He's going to rewrite the law that God had graciously, graciously agreed to renew the covenant with his people. Right? The covenant was rooted in the Mosaic law. And so he says, all right, you're going to write the law again. I'm, gonna, I'm recommitting to the people, even though they've rejected me. I won't reject them. And he goes back up Mount Sinai, and it says in verse 5, God's presence came down. And look what it says in verse 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord in all caps, that's the divine name of God. The ones who wrote the Hebrew scriptures in Hebrew would not write the divine name. It was so holy. It was, it was treated with such honor. It means Yahweh. 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 A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who, by, who will by no means clear the guilty. These are the most important and well-known verses in the Old Testament. 
Did you know these verses are quoted in the Bible more than any other verses quoted in the Bible? God first proclaims his name, Yahweh. I am that I am. We saw this back in Exodus 3. This means God is self-existent and self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything else to exist. He's the only one like that. And then he proclaims his attributes. What is he like? What is it that makes God God? He tells Moses, here's who I am. I'm a God merciful and gracious. I like how one pastor put it, Tony Marie, he put it this way. To those in need, God is merciful or compassionate. God cares about his children. He knows how frail and needy we are. He's gentle and lowly. This is his heart toward us. The very thing, first thing God says is, I am compassionate. I am merciful. Not only that, he says, to those who can never measure up, I am gracious. Grace means undeserved favor. Look, here's what we think grace is like. We think, you know, you ask the teacher, show me some grace, right? You got a mediocre grade at school on an assignment or a quiz or test, and you go to the teacher and say, hey, can I have some grace? And maybe there's some extra credit you can do, or maybe you can do test corrections, and we think that's grace, right? No, that's not grace. Grace isn't you do your, your part and God helps you out a little bit. No, that's not grace. That's mercy. That's kindness. And if you're a teacher, those are good things. Keep doing that. But that's not what God is saying when he says, I'm gracious. No, grace is this. You failed a test. You flunked it. And that guy over there, he aced the test. He keeps getting hundreds, hundred, 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 never gets anything wrong. And his name is Jesus. And grace is, you go to the teacher and say, I failed. Have mercy on me. Show grace to me. And Jesus comes up and goes, he can have all my grades. Yep, impute to him, credit to him all of my grades. And the teacher says, okay, uh, A pluses. All A pluses. Everybody gets an A. But you have to admit you failed in order to get Jesus' grade. It's completely undeserved. That's what grace is. Not only that, God reveals his nature that he is, to those who are rebellious, he says, I am slow to anger. God is patient with his people. He already calls them, Israel is a stiff-necked people. They're prone to wander. They're prone to, to, to veer off to other gods. They do it time and time again. He knows it. In the past, they're going to do it in the future. And God says, this is who I am. I don't blow up in anger, and I'm not a God who never gets angry. I'm a God who is slow to anger patient with us in our stubbornness and rebellion. And he says, to the unfaithful, God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. This speaks to the, the covenant nature of God's love. His chesed is the Hebrew word for covenant love, uh, covenant faithfulness. It means he, he can never be unfaithful. He will always do what he says. He will always keep his steadfast love to thousands of generations. His love doesn't change based on your moods or his moods. His love doesn't change based on how you feel, how worthy you feel this day or that day. His love doesn't change based on whether the person next to you is loving you well or not. His love will never falter and never fail. 
steadfast love. But then he's, and then he says, to the guilty, God is forgiving. He says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He uses all three Hebrew words to describe all kinds of sin. All the sins your, our warped minds and hearts think of, I can forgive, I will forgive. We all need this kind of forgiveness. God is saying to you right now, no matter what you've said or done, no matter what is in your past, I can offer full forgiveness. And then finally God says to the unrepentant, God is just. He says, I will by no means clear the guilty. This is the hard part. This is where we go, eh, I'm not sure I want a God like that. We don't get to decide what God is like or don't like. He proclaims his own name. He reveals what he's like because God is God and we are not. Those who reject God, he says, are going to be held accountable. He's a judge. Yes, he's a loving father. Yes, he can give you all A's. He's so gracious. But if you reject him, he says, I will hold you accountable. Is the God that you know and worship that holy and that loving? If you don't like one of those characteristics and you say, I would rather a God who isn't holy to the point of punishing all evil, then what you're saying is you don't want to worship a God who actually is. You want to worship a God of your own making. And that's okay. You can do that. You're free to do that. It's just not this God. It's not the living God. Plus, I don't really think you want to worship a God like that. I really don't think. A God who is infinitely loving but not infinitely holy is, is not a God worth worshiping. Why? Because there's no beauty, there's no sacrifice, no significance to a God who loves any, everyone and doesn't deal with evil. We don't want a God like that. You say you want a God like that until you, see the impl- until you actually think of the implications of that. That's a puppet God. That's a genie in a bottle God. Listen, when you let it sink in that this God, this Yahweh, is both holy and loving, both gracious and just, when you get a glimpse of the glory of God, it will move you just like it did for Moses. Moses interacted with God as a friend. But when the glory of God is proclaimed in his attributes, when Moses sees and experiences his goodness, look at the only proper response, verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. You know you're worshipping the one true God when you don't understand all of his ways and yet you bow down in humble worship and trust. Are you worshiping the God who is incredibly gracious so much so that he promises to show love to thousands of generations and yet so holy that he promises to punish every evil deed? This is Yahweh. This is our God. The the glorious presence of this God is worthy of your worship. And then lesson number three, we experience the glorious presence of God in Jesus Christ. If you're tracking here, if you've been tracking properly, if you're kind of, your antennae are up, you probably have some questions because there seems to be a contradiction here. God says, I am infinitely gracious and, and compassionate. I forgive sin, all of your sin, but, notice that word in there, but, verse seven, who will by no means clear the guilty. 
Well, what does that mean? I will forgive sin, but I'll never let sin go unpunished. That sounds strange. Can you hear the tension there? Why can't God let someone go unpunished? Because he wouldn't be just. If we had judge after judge who let everyone go, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, we would go, that's not a judge, that's a genie, and we didn't hire you for that. Why can't God stop his love from flowing so lavishly that he can forgive sin? Because he's a God of steadfast love. He can't stop, he can't not love. It's who he is. God is love, First John 4. But that's kind of confusing. How can God be both? Either he forgives lavishly or he punishes justly. You can't have it both ways, God. Or can he? That's the question. Don't you see it? God is saying, this is my goodness. This is my glory. I am both at the same time. And Moses probably has no clue how this works, but he concludes rightly, this is why God is God and I am not. If I understood God fully, then why would I worship him? I would be God. He wouldn't be worthy of my worship if I understood him fully. Getting a glimpse of God's infinite holiness and love was enough for, for Moses to have the greatest experience of worship in his life. This is God's glory, his significance, his weightiness. How do we make sense of this tension now? Did you know we have a glory revealed to us that is far greater than Moses ever had? Jesus comes into the picture in the New Testament thousands of years later after Moses, and it says in John 1, 14, John declares, and the Word, that's Jesus, Jesus is the Word, and the Word became flesh. In verse 1 and 2, he already said the Word is God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And this Word, who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. John, do you see what John is doing? He's, he's hearkening back to Exodus. What does it mean to tabernacle? It means for God to live among His people, right in the center of His people. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen His what? His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, glory. We've seen his glory. Now, he's, now John is reminding us specifically of this encounter Moses had with God. This Jesus, this word who came down and became flesh, is the God of the Old Testament, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God who showed up to Moses, is the God of all glory. But Moses couldn't see the face of God and live. But we get to see the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. His whole life, Jesus lived full of grace and truth. In other words, both love and holiness. And we see this in the fullest measure on the cross. Jesus who never sinned, never did anything wrong, never disobeyed God's law, never spoke back to his parents, right? Never was greedy or lustful. He goes to the cross and he dies unjustly. As God's predetermined plan. Why? Because God is infinitely holy. He must punish sin. Not Jesus' sin, he didn't have any. What was Jesus dying for? He was dying for your sin and my sin. 
Every time we've acted selfishly, every hurtful word, every impure thought, God will by no means clear the guilty. And so Jesus becomes our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. For all of eternity, God, God and, and Jesus, the Son and the Spirit, they, they had the face of one another. Jesus had the face of his Father, the glory of his Father, the presence of his Father shining on him. But on the cross, in a mysterious way, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost the face of God. He couldn't see it. He couldn't find it. It, it, it was different. Something was different. He lost it. And, and all, why? Because God was laying on Jesus all of our guilt. And he is not going to be looking at sin. He's punishing sin. He's punishing guilt. And Jesus got what we deserve, the loss of God's face. Absolute insignificance. Total irrelevance. Jesus became irrelevant. A nobody. This is what hell is like, folks. To lose the presence of God, to have him turn away, to be a nobody, that's, that's what hell is. Why would Jesus do that? Why would, he, why would he even put himself through that? Yes, because God is holy and must punish sin, but it's also because he is infinitely loving. Because Jesus took our sin on the cross, that means the penalty for our sin is paid in full. It's why Jesus cried out at the end of his agony on the cross. He said, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. So that now through faith in Jesus, you can experience the compassion and forgiveness of God, the steadfast love of God. And I submit to you, this is stunningly beautiful. That's God's glory on display. If you believe in a God who accepts everybody, that isn't beautiful. There's no glory in that. That God doesn't have to sacrifice anything to love you. And if you believe in a God who is only holy and just and he requires you to be a good person and do what he commands in order for you to get to heaven, that's not beautiful either. There's no glory in that. That just leads to a fear-based religion, a a proud, self-promoting religion. Look who I'm better than. But a God who lets all of his goodness pass by you in Jesus Christ, who shows you his infinite holiness and love, a God who doesn't hold anything back but gives himself fully to you, that's beautiful. That's glory. And a God who would rise from the dead so that he could then say, my life, my Zoe life, my eternal life, I literally give to you now through faith in me, you are united to this life. That is incredible. And through our union with Christ, God changes us. He transforms us more and more into the image of his son. And we now get to go out into the world. You know what we get to do now? As a Christian, what, what does it look like to live as the body of Christ? We get to share his glory by sharing his gospel. And we get to reflect his glory by living a life rooted in the gospel, flowing from the gospel. I know you haven't seen God firsthand. I know that. But if you're in Christ, you have seen the face of God. You have it. His presence united to yours. And that matters more than anything else in the world. Look, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. You now have his glory, which means you'll never be irrelevant. You'll never be a nobody. How can you? You matter most to the one who matters most. He forgave you. He adopted you. You are now his friend. 
a friend of God. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody, certainly not to him. And you say, well, how does that, Mark, tell me what to do so I can change. Well, sometimes you don't change by being told what to do. Sometimes you change by simply reveling, delighting in, resting in what he's done for you. And listen, this isn't the end of the story. We're on this journey, right? We're, we're kind of in the valley of the shadow of death as we take every step by faith, knowing we have union with Christ, the very presence and face of Christ. But this future reality is coming. Psalm 1611, David says, in your presence, wait a minute, in your what? In your presence, in your face is fullness of joy. That's your future. That's what you'll get. Because when, you, when he takes you home to be with him, you will be like him and you will know him as he is, First John tells us. In God's glorious presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's your future reality. You have his glorious presence now and it's what you look forward to. Let's live in light of this truth, this grace. Let's pray. Father, we believe that there is no one like you. We believe not in a way to convince ourselves what is true, not in a way to make sense of life. We're not, we're not escapists, Lord. We don't believe in order to make sense of life. We believe in order to make everything else fall in line with, with this reality. We believe as the very foundation of our being. We worship you because we don't completely understand you. And yet we worship you because you have revealed yourself in very clear and specific ways. And the ways that you have revealed yourself, Lord, are beautiful. They are stunning. No other God in human history, no other small g God can claim to have infinite holiness and infinite love. We thank you that you, you care enough about us, us stiff-necked people, to decide you're not going to get rid of us, you're not going to start over, you're not going to pick one out of us, and Lord, you, you're going to stick with us to the end. It is your presence here among us as Grace Baptist Church that matters more than anything else. Lord, if you must strip everything else out of the way, if you must take everything else out of the way, whatever freedoms, whatever things we are trusting in, whatever things we find our value and identity in, Lord, strip it out of the way until we have you and you alone and find that you alone are worthy of our worship, of our faith, and by you everything else makes sense. God, make this true. I'm afraid to pray this prayer, but Lord, I, how can I not? When we look to the cross, how can we not? Use this church. Purify this church. Equip this church. Send us out. There's so much work to do. So much confusion in our world. We don't even know what a human is. God, help us that we might know who you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.